designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tails behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here, so let's get into it. Episode 12. Welcome back to another episode, and thank you all for listening. So it's been a busy month. In addition to me moving my private residence, I also helped found and launch the Black and Historic Preservation Directory. Kennedy Widers out of New York and I collaborated on this after hearing from numerous people about the need for a directory of Black preservation professionals in the country. So we got together and Kennedy did a fantastic job putting together much of the framework and technology to really make the website and the directory come to life. I'll put a link in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out. It's a really great resource for professionals in the country. And then in addition to all of that, then there's also some great coverage in the AA magazine on this podcast. And it was exciting to be interviewed by Christina, who did a great job synthesizing our conversation. So it's been a great month. And so thank you for your patience as, as I was a little distracted doing a number of other things instead of releasing podcast episodes. So there's been an uptick in subscribers and followers on social. For those of you not yet following, be sure to follow me on Instagram or Facebook at Tangible Remnants as I'm um, revamping what I'm trying to do on social to engage a bit more. So hopefully you'll see some more fun, engaging content in your feed. Today, I am really excited to share this episode with you. It is a conversation I had with Constance Lai in late December 2020. And Connie is one of my good friends in the profession. We met when I used to work at AECOM, and Connie was one of the first people who encouraged me to get involved with APTDC when I moved back to the DC area. She is amazing. And in 2020, she was elevated to fellow within the American Institute of Architects. 
In this conversation, we cover what got her to a construction site full-time. She is a licensed architect, but she is on the general contractor side now. Uh, we talk about the professional differences she observed while completing her Richard Morris Hunt Fellowship in France, and so the differences between the U.S. and France and how we do preservation or conservation. We also talked about the importance of valuing the impact of tradespeople on the built environment. And her being one of the few women on the job site, how often she needs to negotiate between the architect and the builder to problem solve and really find the best solution for the building. It is a really great conversation that talks about the impact of builders and the different ways to solve people and construction problems. So let me get into her bio so you can hear how amazing she is and all the letters behind her name. So Constance Lai, FAIA, NCARB, LEAD BDNC, USACE-CQM, is the Historic Preservation Manager for Grundley Construction. She provides historic preservation and conservation support to both the pre-construction and operations departments. Her expertise ranges from design build to quality control to sustainability. She has over 16 years of experience in historic preservation and has worked on the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, the Washington Monument, and the U.S. Capitol. She has lectured on integrating conservation into the design and construction process, the Washington Monument Earthquake Repair Project, and the contributions of Thomas Casey and Bernard Green to the Washington, D.C. built environment. She received her Bachelor of Architecture from Rice University and her Master of Science in Architectural Studies, History, Theory, and Criticism from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She is an alumna of the AIADC chapter's Christopher Kelly Leadership Program, And in 2017, she was awarded the Richard Morris Hunt Prize Scholarship, which afforded her the opportunity to spend five weeks in France visiting preservation architecture firms and visiting construction sites. So Connie has worked on a number of historic monuments in D.C. and is my go-to person for everything preservation construction related. She's one of the contractors who worked on the Washington Monument and encouraged me to finally go visit it. Because even though I'm from Northern Virginia, I didn't actually go to the top of the monument until I was in my mid-30s because I kept saying, oh, I could go whenever I want. And so Connie encouraged me to go sooner rather than later. So... And Connie and I have been friends for so long that you'll hear a lot of laughter and it's just, it's a good conversation. So I hope you enjoy being a fly on the wall while we're talking. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode between me and Constance Lai. So I'm glad that you are here because you're one, you're, you're my go-to for like all things construction, particularly preservation construction things. So I guess why don't we start with a little bit of what got you onto the construction side of things, since I know that you're also a licensed architect. So why don't we start there? Okay. So I actually ended up on a construction site full time in 2007 when I moved to Washington, D.C., And I just ended up loving it. And for some reason, whenever I worked in architecture firms, I mean, I liked it, but I didn't like love it. Mm -hmm. And then when I was on this construction site full time, I just realized, you know what? This is for me. I'm never going back to an architecture (laughs) firm ever again. And uh, I just love, I love being on the site. I love problem solving in three dimensions with all of the contractors and architects who come to my site and the owners too, being able to just see things in three dimensions. And people always ask me, oh, well, aren't you like kind of giving up your your ability to design? And you know what? 
uh, I'm okay with that. I think that in architecture school, it's so drilled in our heads that we have to be the designer. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I just love being the builder. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, that was 2007, and I have not looked back since. That's awesome. No. And, like, I think it's interesting because the idea of, like, being, like, the design side versus the builder side. So, like, yeah, there is kind of the permit document set of it. But I feel like you're still doing a, a lot of design solutions in the field because they're, as much as architects like to think we know how things go together in the real world, well, that's not always the case. <laughs> right. You know, and you know, I work with guys and gals from all over the world, South America, from Europe, everywhere. And and there's just so much knowledge that they have. And, and we never really think that, you know, without their knowledge, our buildings would not get built. And um, so I've been spending my vacation, well, last week, mm -hmm. I... I was writing um, these award submissions for uh, an organization here in D.C. that brings together owners and general contractors and subcontractors. And it's an awards ceremony. Well, now in the, now in, in the age of COVID, it's ceremony was virtual last right. year. But it's just an evening of celebrating craft. And so I was writing the submission for two of my subcontractors on a project of mine last week. And as I'm writing these award submissions, I'm trying to basically convince the, the jury that my subcontractors and their level of craft is better than some other <laughs> contractors, subcontractor on some other site. And um, just the, the act of sitting down and writing and really trying to articulate um, something that doesn't always translate well to words mm -hmm. is just, it's an exercise that I think everybody should really just try. Like, how do you explain your craft? Whether it's architecture or sheet metal work or stone masonry, just trying to record what you do for eternity through words is just, yeah. it's very powerful. And I think that that's something that everyone should do. <laughs> At least, you know, uh, a few days, <laughs> a year maybe. Right. I think that's great. I know that the builders don't often get a lot of the credit for actually building the work. I think or may, this could also just be the architect in me that's like, oh, it's all about the architect and who designed the building and all that. But I feel like there's so many people that actually physically build the structure that don't get that kind of acknowledgement of, hey, hey, yeah, they built this <laughs> literally with their... Right manual labor. So I'm glad that exists. How are you seeing that kind of from the construction side? Or are there other ways that subs and builders get acknowledged? Well, I mean, there's always appreciation on multiple levels, but I think that the, the Washington Building Congress, they are the ones who are sponsoring these awards. Uh, it's just something that I've never really seen before um, hmm. in other parts of the country. I'm pretty sure they exist. But here in D.C., um, there are at least a thousand people in Oof. that banquet room. Wow. Um, you know, and it's just it's just everybody comes together to celebrate craft. And it's really great. And yeah, I think it should happen more often. But here in D.C., it happens once a year. But that's awesome. I didn't, I didn't even realize that existed. That's very cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the contractors, we have other awards, too, from different organizations. There are a lot of other organizations, mm -hmm. but that one's like, the, it's the biggest one. Gotcha. So. Okay. And, like, and I know that you have done so many different historic buildings or worked on so many different historic monuments in D.C. Have there been any fun 
random time capsule things or any sort of like things from the past that you've discovered on different construction sites? Well, um, there are a lot and they happen all the time. So I'm not thinking of one in particular. Okay. But uh, that's kind of like why I love being on construction sites is because mm-hmm. we always find those discoveries. I love, um, like on the current job that I'm on, I spent a week or so, a few, like a month ago, um, just pulling together old photographs from different archives online and uh, different plans and sections, just trying to problem solve um, some things on the job site. Uh, One thing that um, a lot of people don't know about me is that I actually have a master's in art and architectural history, and I can do archival research. And that just geeking out. Uh, (laughs) I used to do it in libraries. And and in this pandemic, I've been doing it online a lot. And I've been actually like, I'll send requests to the librarian at the Library of Congress for something, and they'll send it back to me. (laughs) So like what, what before I would have to go there and get the information and um, now um, everybody's getting used to exchanging all of the archival things maps plans online and then i just go straight into bluebeam and i start putting everything together and i try to figure out oh how am i going to build this wall back <laughs> you know, it's a really great thing i think just to combine all of my interests in that way yeah I didn't know that you had that master's. That that is fascinating. A woman of many many talents. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know um, the writing. I'm not the greatest writer, but the masters gave me the ability and the courage to take bits of information from everywhere and put it down on paper and mm-hmm. write. And yeah. and so it kind of like there's this crazy string from me and almost failing my masters to like writing these award submissions for my subcontractors. There is, there's a, a lineage there of just sitting down, thinking, compiling things, writing. Right. <laughs> right. Oh man. And speaking of writing, I was looking through the report that you sent me from your time when you were in France after getting the fellowship, which was amazing. What were some of the similarities or differences that you saw from doing I guess, conservation in France versus preservation in the States. Yeah, um, actually, what really surprised me mm-hmm. was that the preservation architects in France, mm-hmm. they actually run the job sites. And really? so when I was there, I was just like, wait, you guys are doing what I do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're like, well, this is just what we always do. And I was like, what? That, it does, you can never do that in America, unless you're me, <laughs> an right. architect working for a GC, <laughs> and and uh, so that was really uh, interesting because over there, I mean, they have general contractors too over there, but for the preservation projects, mm-hmm. um, like the like the small to medium sized ones, mm-hmm. and even some of the large ones, the person in charge is the preservation architect. Wow. So and, like they're doing the drawings and then actually going out and being like the super on the super, site. Like, wow. Yeah. And then, and then, um, but they don't go to the site. They're not there a hundred percent of the time. I mean, some of them for big projects, they are, but right. you know, on the medium sized projects, I was like, how, how do you guys, who, who coordinates, you know, right. like, because you know, I, I, all of the superintendents I work with, they're on, on site hundred percent of the time. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, well, you know, our, our trades, they know what to do. And I was like, oh, that's because in America, our trades don't know what to 
and I was like, oh, okay, because over there, there's a very, very strong like training system for the trades. Mm-hmm. Like when you're 15, 16 years old you, and you don't want to finish high school, you can go into a trade school very oh. young. And you, you make that decision on your own when you're very young and you say, I'm going to be a carpenter or huh. I'm going to be a sculptor or hey. I'm going <laughs> to be a cook. <laughs> and, and because they, they think that at that young age, and I think, it's, I think you can at that young age, um, mm-hmm. at, that's the time when you're like thinking, you know, you, you figure out mm, there are certain things I'm drawn to and yeah. I'm going to go for it. And I think that's actually a really good system. And so the people who come up through the trades, they do know what they're doing. They, they learn from a very young age before, like mid-teens, how to interact with other trades. And then when I was with the architects there, mm-hmm. they would wait for the architect to come that like once a week, once, twice a week, or like, you know, every other week. And they would, then they would ask their questions, what we would call RFIs, you know, oh, they, gotcha. then they would be like, well, what do I do here? What do I do here? Who goes first here? Right. And then the architect would be like, okay, no, you go first, you go second. Right. And, and they would have the same, and, but they would also have the same quality control issues that I have on my job site. Like I went to um, one job site, like this huge chateau and I'm walking around with the architect and the carpenter complains mm-hmm. to the architect and says to her, well, you know, the electrician was really sloppy and didn't, you know, put their wires behind the baseboard correctly. And so there was no way for me to put this baseboard on correctly. And, and the architect was like, well, I mean, you put the baseboard incorrectly. So it's like, so it's like, take it off, tell the electrician to shove right. the, the, the wires into the baseboard and then put your wood back on. <laughs> so it's like, so like we have that issue here too. So, <laughs> so it's, it's still all the same. Right. It doesn't matter which country you're in. <laughs> it's funny. It's like, yeah, people are the same everywhere. All right. Yep. Did you have any uh, highlights or favorite things that stood out while you were over there? Uh, yeah. You know, I visited their, uh, they have a national laboratory for conservation research. Um, okay. Laboratoire de Recherche per Monument Historique. I can say that better sometimes. But <laughs> um, L-R-M-H. In English, L R M H. Okay. Laboratory uh, for research for historic monuments because over there they call all of their historic buildings historic monuments. They use the word monument um, for everything, even though it's not a monument in our in the English sense. Gotcha. And so okay. the so the laboratory that uh, I went to, I spent two days there, and they have different conservation scientists who have expertise in different things. So um, stained glass, textile, stone, masonry, metalwork, concrete. And so I got to meet with all of these experts at LRMH. And whenever you're working on a project, no matter where you are in France, if you need some conservation lab work done, mm-hmm. you can just go to them. And, mm. and here in this country, we have to get you know, a private third party right. uh, conservation scientist to help us. Mm-hmm. And over there, it's nationalized. Oh. So, so they can just come in and help you. <laughs> and it's like amazing. And, you know, on my job sites, it's just like, 
can I get three competitive bids from a conservation lab here, right. there, everywhere? It's like, it's like this, like, it like stresses everybody out. Cause it's just like, where do I go? Right. You know, like, Ooh, how? Yeah, exactly. Ooh, how? Why? <laughs> right. And sometimes, you know, I, I have clients who, who like luxuriously have their own conservation lab and it's like, oh, thank God. Oh. But, you know, for, for my other projects, it's just like, there's just no way, there's no budget. Right. So that's something that I kind of hope to um, lobby Congress for someday. Yeah. That's <laughs> a national laboratory for us. <laughs> Yeah, because I'm thinking of like the smaller, like, like, I know National Park Service has like the training center in Frederick and it's like IMI, but it, it doesn't sound like it's on a similar scale for what you're looking at the LRM. No, these, these are like, la- this is laboratory work. Oh, uh, okay. You know, like, All right. just like trying to figure out, for example, how to repair the stained glass at Notre Dame. So one of the people I met with, she's actually showcased on the NOVA, the most recent NOVA program mm-hmm. on PBS about, the no- about Notre Dame. And they actually showed her laboratory, which I was in when I was mm-hmm. there. And that's definitely something everybody should watch that Nova show about Notre Dame. But it's a—it's uh, really just the scientists. Gotcha. Just and for them, for the whole entire country, just to be able to always reach out to them is just really, really nice and incredible. Yeah. Something I mean, that I wish we had here. Could you imagine if like scientists were that revered in this country? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> amazing. It would be amazing. More ways than one. <laughs> exactly. Man, the impacts would be felt in so many different areas. <laughs> um, so then I guess in terms of the trades, picking up the thread of people being able to start going into trades at a younger age in France. How did the trades typically work in the States or how does that compare? Well, you know, when I was growing up and when I was in high school there, we did have a Votech school. Mm -hmm. The students who weren't as good at classroom work, coursework, Mm -hmm. they would take the bus to the Votech school. And then of course that all went to the wayside with no child left behind and um, so now as a country, I think we have started to realize that that was kind of not the way to go. Not yep. everybody needs to go to college. Not everybody wants to go to college. Yep. And, um, and I think that we have to value those types of work. The trades have to be valued. There's no way to move on <laughs> yeah. as a society without really valuing what they do. And I think that there are community colleges that are starting to fulfill the need. And I see a lot of people on the construction sites, my construction sites, and they're just learning on the fly. And it would be really great if we could, you know, bring back some of those schools just so they're not a fish out of water when they first end up on a construction site. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I know that the uh, like National Trust has been doing Hope Crew Second Chance. So it's also like trying to help both young people who don't know what they want to do, but then also um, I think it was people who are just out of incarceration. So really trying and also right. trying to diversify the field as well, because yep. it's one of the things where as our apprenticeship model has been trailing off and as the master crafts people have been dying in the country, I know there is starting to be a little bit of a vacuum in terms of trades people who actually are skilled enough to do the work, which is a whole nother yes. scary thing that I'm sure you're probably running into a little bit on your construction sites. 
Yes, yes. But you know, um, Facebook is a wonderful thing. <laughs> and um, I've noticed, and I am on some groups mm -hmm. where um, trades people from all over the country have started their own Facebook groups. And just to read the discussions on those Facebook group pages is just incredible. That's I'm, awesome. on, I'm on one where it's just about windows and the wealth of knowledge on these Facebook pages. I'm like, somebody mm. needs to be collecting these things <laughs> and cataloging them because they're just, these conversations are so incredible. And yeah. just, uh, just being able to disseminate them would be great. You know, yeah. platform. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Is it outside of like, aside from like the preservation trades network kind of conversations, it's totally separate from that. Yeah, yeah, the Windows group. Some of them are part of PTN, mm -hmm. um, but then um, they're they're actually here. It's National Association of Window Restoration Specialists, oh, nice. and it's a private group. Mm -hmm. But um, they they will let anybody who's interested in old windows in. Okay. And right now, the group I'm looking at it on my other screen has 752 members. That's impressive. And, yeah, yeah, it's just really windows. it's just. Just okay. windows, just old windows. It's it's just really, really great. I would cool. recommend it. Yeah, I'll put a link to it. If it yeah. All right, that's awesome. And then uh, speaking of diversity, uh, I just need to put a plug in because I'm a board director of the Architects Foundation. The AIA Philanthropic Wing is the Architects Foundation, and um, we are also a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And our most recent effort was uh, trying to drum up interest in our diversity advance advancement scholarships, mm -hmm. DAS for short. So when I was in school in um, the early 90s, I actually received a, a diversity advancement scholarship from AIA. And so now it's like full circle uh, yeah. now that I'm on board. And uh, to, to make it even more crazy, they actually administer the Richard Morris Hunt Prize as well. So I've, I've gotten a lot of money from them throughout my career. So I felt like I should try to give back. So I love it. <laughs> so, awesome. Yeah. So we did really, really well this year um, in terms of getting people interested and um, getting people to just basically know us um, mm -hmm. because we not only give scholarships, diversity scholarships and the Richard Morris Hunt Prize, but we have a sustainability scholarship. We have women's scholarships and nice. we have all different kinds of scholarships. So um, I definitely recommend everybody visiting the homepage. It's architectsfoundation.org. Awesome. And I'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes as well. So you can get to cool. it easier, make it clickable, all that good stuff. So the AIA's philanthropic wing is the Architects Foundation. And then for the AIA, the local chapter here in D.C., the organization, the philanthropic wing is the Washington Architectural Foundation. And so one thing that they do is a program called Architecture in the Schools. Mm -hmm. And a few years ago, I uh, participated and I taught fourth graders in Anacostia. Cool. And we were given um, a class of um, intellectually challenged children. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it from a pessimistic point of view, mm -hmm. it was a little bit difficult. I mean, we had, they, they stole all the scissors I bought from, for them <laughs> from Ikea. Okay. You know, in one class, uh, a bully came and started beating up one Aww. of the kids in my class. Aww. And then at, at one point, my friend Dominique and I, we were the only two adults in the whole entire room. And oh, it was pure chaos. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> and then another time, another um, fourth grader who was just as tall as I am, she mm. just, in the middle of us giving a lecture, just came up and started stroking my hair. Okay. And, and Dominique was like, just, she burst out laughing. She was like, she's never seen straight hair before. <laughs> Be. <laughs> I, was like, I was like okay so but uh there's this what one, one class in particular i'd like to just recount mm-hmm. we had decided that we were going to teach them how to draw their classroom to scale mm-hmm. on a piece of paper cool on a piece of gridded paper and it was just nobody could do it i mean mm-hmm. it was just everybody was flailing around going what's how do I draw this door opening? What? Right. And there was this one young, well, they were all young, but um, small mm-hmm. girl. She was obviously much shorter mm-hmm. than anyone else in the class. Mm-hmm. And she was mute, or so we thought, you know, because mm-hmm. we, I still today don't know her name. She just wouldn't talk. Okay. And she was the only one who Aww. could draw. The room to scale and plan. And we were just like, oh my God, we just have to get her out of here. She needs to go to architecture school now. <laughs> and I'm just hoping that she remembered that experience that right. we gave her. Right. That Something she that she enjoyed grew. to do. Was, yeah. That, that'd be awesome. That was just my one little story. Of, <laughs> everybody should, should at least volunteer for architects in the schools once in their life or a similar program in their local area yes and um and find those gems yep. they need to be found and nourished so. and yeah and yes. shown other options absolutely yes. as a woman in construction like for instance mm-hmm. i know even as a woman in the architecture field one of the things that i was taught when going on construction sites is that i had to be stern never wear the pink hat all of those things like you know don't let people cat call you those types of things. Um, what are some of the lessons learned that you've, I guess, this is a ridiculous question, but like being a woman on construction sites where you're typically having to direct crews of men, particularly on like big monumental buildings, you know, any tips, any, any things that stand out, any highlights, anything? <laughs> I have a pink hard hat. <laughs> okay. I don't wear it all the time. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, it, it still exists. Mm-hmm. The cat calling and everything, but then the minute the guys who cat call me realize who I am, mm-hmm. uh, they stop. <laughs> We're like, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> she's kind of our boss. <laughs> she, she, she can kick me off the job site, so I'm not going to cat call her anymore. Okay. Oh, so. it's so fun when people realize, oh, wait a minute, nope, maybe she's not the one I should be messing with. No, sir. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So okay. I mean, it's just um, but I mean, like any any job i mean you just have to prove yourself too Mm. you know so it takes a while you know you don't you don't earn your respect you know just like that you gotta be there in the trenches figuring things out you know yeah and when when everybody needs when it's all hands on deck you gotta be there too so yeah i mean yeah you just have to earn it yeah and i think there's something to be said for just being confident enough to show up and keep showing up and realize and still speaking up because it's like it's one of those things where you're not going to earn that respect by uh waiting for permission for someone to acknowledge you and all this sort of stuff like you have to be right. a presence and be there well yeah. you know you don't you don't know this but i can be very loud and very mean and that, that, that helps too <laughs> i mean it definitely does and it's one of those things where i think I, and i think even like as women we kind of have to balance that how do we um have our voices be heard 
and kind of toe that line of being a little bit of a bitch, but also not being a pushover. So it's like that line right. between the two. It's it's kind of a difficult balance to walk, but it's something I think we kind of all get used to knowing how to make that balance work. Yeah. And, you know, it's all about teamwork, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're with different clients, different subs, you know, some people click, some people don't. Right. I mean, you shouldn't take offense if they don't like you, you know try to get, you know, your superintendent to talk to them instead, you right. know, just right. every, it's like tag team who yes. gets along with who and be a team player. And if, if someone's not listening to you think of like, well, what's the best way is it to kind of get my other assistant right. superintendent to talk to that person? Or is it something that I think I can handle on my own if I just say it the right way? Mm-hmm. And so it's like just trying to like figure out different ways of right. you know, getting people on the same page as you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Always the struggle. But yes, absolutely. Uh, staying with the, the tradespeople, um, are there any things that you wish architects or preservationists would do differently or know when they're working with tradespeople or contractors? Because I feel like there's often that um, architects who've never been to a construction site designing things that they don't know, like that actually can't work and <laughs> things like that. Oh, yes. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, that happens all the time, actually. <laughs> and and I have to say that it's not, I mean, it's everybody has their own way of doing things mm-hmm. and or thinking about things. And sometimes the architect is right. And sometimes my contractor is right. And sometimes there's no, no one's right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like there's certain repairs that like, I'm like, well, you know, my, my subcontractor wants to do it, wants to do it this way. The architect wants to do it this way. And we kind of like try to come to a compromise. And, you know, if, if it's a repair that, you know, no one really knows how long it's going to last, mm-hmm. you know, then it's just like, well, it's 50, 50. So which, which, which way do we want to go? Right. And I think that architects sometimes are so set on a repair and like, you know, and then my subcontractor's like, oh, that repair is not going to last more than five years, Connie. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, well, let's see what we can do. <laughs> right. You know, but then um, sometimes, you know, the architect's right. And, and my subcontractor's just lazy. So, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just a matter of trying to like balance it all. Right. Um, right. It sounds like and, a, everything's a negotiation. Yes. <laughs> sometimes I, I kind of think I'm like, a, I sometimes... Uh, people ask me, what do I do? And I'm like, I kind of try to translate between what my subcontractor wants to do and what my architect wants to do. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah. And then, you know, some, and there are some things that we've done and we won't know for 20, 30 years, whether or not it was, if it's going to work or not. So I'm like, I have all those filed in the back of my head and like Mm -hmm. 30 years from now, I'm going to start looking around to see how long those repairs lasted. (laughs) Right. And then document them somewhere for everyone. <laughs> oh, yes. Hopefully I'll remember right. to do that. One thing that I've noticed mm. is that my friends of color, of all different colors, sometimes mm. they don't feel like they are kind of like worthy of, mm-hmm. of going all the way in terms of getting their license. Yep. And, and really just, I think that that's something that we need to encourage Mm-hmm. Um, all young architects mm-hmm. of color 
and not of color, any color, any color, really. Yep, any color. <laughs> everyone, <Great>. everyone, <laughs> anyone, please. <laughs> you know, like, don't go get your MBA. Please become an architect. <laughs> because there's something about design that mm-hmm. is just so important. And I think it's a way, it's the way that we can change the world. And I think that people kind of sometimes say, oh, you don't need your license to change the world. But for me, it's not just the discipline. It took me a long time to get my license, but the discipline of it Mm -hmm. and just being able to be at a level that is just above everybody else. Yes. And that really means a lot. Yeah. And Um, licensure gets you there. Because yes. like it's the the level of respect that you receive as a licensed architect, as opposed right. to just someone who studied architecture, is noticeably different. Right, and I think it's really important that I don't want to describe this like in a power versus non-power mm-hmm. type of way. Maybe I should describe it in impactful. If like you that. are licensed, you can be more impactful. Yes, in the world. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yes. <laughs> And that is so true. And like, I'm grateful for like NOMA and the other organizations that are trying to make more of a push and doing different scholarships to try and help people cover some ARE funds and stuff like that. When I became licensed in 2013, I was like the 300 and I think 15th or 30th licensed black woman architect living ever. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what? I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> and so it's like the, the numbers of black architects is, you know, it's, it's growing, but it's still hovering around 2% right. of all architects, which is very low. Um, do you know what it is for Asian Americans and other, or I guess? No, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm, I think um, there has, I think someone has run the numbers, mm-hmm. but um, I'm not positive off the top of my head. Yeah. And um, yeah, at the Architects Foundation, we do have a scholarship if you need help with your ARE fees. Nice. So, yeah, because you know the, the, that extra two thousand dollars is not it's not chump change. <laughs> like it's no, it it costs no. money. It is important to mention yeah, licensure is needed. It's it's needed to to happen. <laughs> like I can't like yes. when I first started, there were so many particularly like older white males who had introduced myself, saying I'm an architect. Like oh, but are you licensed? And I was like, yes, I am. I mean, like because legally you can't call yourself an architect if you're not licensed. Sir, I'm very aware of the, the ethics of the AIA, and I'm a licensed architect. <laughs> so that it was just kind of like right. the, that level of respect change. And so like, oh, okay, well then, you're cool. I guess we'll talk to you. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and, and when I got, I, I became a fellow mm-hmm. earlier this year, and that too, for me, turned a lot of heads. You know, they're like, what? Why? <laughs> She's too young. Or, wait. And it's just, No. I, I worked hard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm proud of what I did. Yes. <laughs> That's something that I think women, everybody, they just, you just need to be able to, you know, not be so modest and just say, I am proud of what I did. <laughs> and, yes. And I really think that you should respect me for it. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Uh, <laughs> and I think that is such a good reminder because I feel like for so many of us, we're like, oh, don't get too big for your britches. You know, who do you think you are? There's all this like imposter syndrome stuff that comes up, particularly as a woman of color in this field. So yeah. I love that reminder from one of the more recent fellows, fellow <laughs> inductees. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but you have awesome. to work hard. Of course. Of you course. know, you have to work hard to earn it. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is right. This is earned, not given. Yes. <laughs> well, that concludes another episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling the inclusive history. Musical selections that you heard throughout the episode are from Sarah Gilberg's album, Other People's Secrets, which is available on Amazon and just about everywhere music is sold. This week's episode is sponsored by Smart Chief Architects. Smart Chief Architects is a course that I created to help architects better manage their small practices. And you can find out more information at www.smartsheetforarchitects.com. And if you enter in offer code TRPODCAST, as in Tangible Remnants Podcast, then you can get 20% off any purchase on any of the courses. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us. Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.